So we're starting a new series, and um, Easter, Easter is an amazing time. It's a great time. It's a time which the Christian church, uh, down through the centuries, has embraced as a significant moment, and we want to remember that moment. I suppose one of the challenges of every year, a bit like Christmas and Easter, they're kind of moments in the year which we will inevitably come to, and that's a really good thing. Um, one of the dangers of that is that we can almost feel, oh, we're back, we're back on that journey. You know, we're back in that, that same old place that we've been in year on year on year. It's Easter, and uh, it's going to be that set of messages, and sometimes we almost feel as though it's the same thing that's dragged out each year. And we feel that maybe at Christmas, we feel that at Easter. We feel that probably because we, we don't see how amazing the moment is. That, that's our problem. That's probably our problem for not communicating it well. And it's our collective problem for not realizing the significance of the events. And so what we want to do this year, and this is really just an introduction, we want to look at the message of Easter through Hebrews. So we're going, to, we're going to look at various passages from the Gospels, and then we're going to go into the book of Hebrews and look at some short sections from the book of Hebrews and see what it says about those moments that we looked at in the Gospel. Right, now, the reason that we're doing that is, is firstly, because it helps us to understand how the Bible works. The, the Bible is, is a great story in the sense that it has a, a line, a storyline, a message which, which continues from the very beginning to the very end. It is a collective piece of work. I find that amazing because there's loads of people in the Bible who are just going through ordinary life. They're just going through their days and that the narrative of the Bible is describing the things that they do, the things that happen, and yet, on another level, the Bible is giving this great message of God to the world, which is a great thing. The other reason that we want to do that is because, to be perfectly honest, if you wanted to understand the message of Easter you would not understand it well simply from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You would not understand it well. You might understand what happens, but you wouldn't understand why it happens. And that's really important, isn't it? it it's one thing to understand that God is communicating. It's another thing to understand that he communicates in progressive steps. So things that go on in the Gospels, things that happen as we look at the life of Jesus, are explained later on in the Bible. In fact, what we find is that the Bible in its entirety, the Old Testament as well, is explained the further on that we go. And I would suggest that we, we continue in that journey today. We understand more of the implications of the New Testament today because of where we are in history. 
I'll give you just one example. The beginning of Acts, it talks about the message of um, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. That, that's a big kind of journey for the gospel to take, isn't it? The gospel message in Acts ends when the gospel reaches Rome. It doesn't mention the ends of the earth. And the, if you were living in those days, that would have been considered it's reached everywhere if it's reached Rome. But here we are today, we see that it's reached way more places than they even knew existed in those days. Isn't that an amazing thought? That the gospel is continuing to, to unveil itself in ways that were not understood in the first days that it was penned. And yet, it was not outside of the mind of God. So that's why we're wanting to do this. Because um, we're understanding how God is revealing Himself, showing Himself, explaining Himself, describing Himself. I think it's a really important point. I think very often we have an idea, don't we? In fact, it's a conversation that I've had with various people over the years who've said something along the lines of this. I'd believe in God if I really saw Him. Or I'd believe in God if He really made it obvious. Or some other such idea. What's behind that is the idea that I would only believe in God if He reveals Himself in just the way that I decide He has to reveal Himself for me to believe. And what God says throughout the Bible is, you must believe in the way that I have decided to reveal myself to this world. It's not down to what you've decided is necessary, it's down to what I've decided is necessary. And that means for us today that understanding Easter is the moment where we can, in the greatest way, understand God revealing Himself. It's an amazing moment. But bear in mind, over these next weeks, it is the way that God has decided to reveal Himself. And therefore, we take note And so we're going to come to this, we're going to very quickly go through um, the the scene that we looked at earlier in the Gospel of John. Joe read earlier on about the tremendous entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, one week earlier. And now we find ourselves a week later, where Jesus is on the verge of total abandonment. It's It's an amazing week. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. Those of you who've seen pictures of Jerusalem got an idea of Jerusalem. It was a walled city with gates into the city. And he entered into that place which had this heritage of being at the very center of God's people. It was this place where God was incredibly present. The temple was there. It was the place where God was speaking to the world. That's the idea that Jerusalem has. And he enters into that place, and the city is in uproar, triumphant uproar. 
One week later, he's in an upper room with a small group of his disciples, and hours later, he is totally abandoned. I think that that, even that, should just spark a little warning to us about how incredibly fickle we are as people. It's what we are. We can be so excited about this this Jesus. We can be so on board with this Jesus, and yet, relatively speaking, so quickly it can die. And I think that the reason for that is connected to the first idea that it dies because God doesn't carry on revealing Himself in the way that we think He should. He doesn't carry on working in our lives in the way that we think He should. It gets a bit boring, it gets a bit tedious, or He doesn't do the changes in our life that we think we need changing, and so we get, we get fed up, or even worse, we turn against. That's a warning to us at the beginning of this Easter journey. And in a sense, that's a bit of the warning of the letter to Hebrews. It's written to a group of people who are in danger of abandoning their faith. So we come to this place and we see, let's set the scene. The disciples have prepared the Passover meal. An incredibly important moment in, in the Jewish year. The Passover is that moment when God's people remember God's salvation. That's, that's the key to the Passover. It's, a, remem- it's a, a memorial, a remembrance of how God has saved them in the past. It's a remembrance of how they came out of Egypt. They were at that time, they were captives in Egypt. It was impossible in human terms for them to be released. But in the middle of the night, God dealt with Egypt Uh, and they were released. They were allowed to uh, escape from Egypt. God delivered them. Now, they were told at that time, in that moment of delivery, to eat a meal in a particular way. And so, the Jewish people, because God told them to do this, He said, you carry on eating a meal in the same way as you did so that you will remember what happens. That's... (laughs) That is a really important concept to God's people. You keep on eating a meal once a year because you remember what happens. What we see going on here a few minutes later is a supper that God has with His people, with His disciples, where they eat a meal. And later on, God instructs His people, you carry on doing that to remember how I saved you back there. But it is this meal that they're at. And the disciples, we find, uh, have not conformed to the expected custom of the day. The expected custom of the day on arriving at a house, let's just for a moment, I know it's quite nice out there, and um, I can actually kind of look around, and some of us have actually got sandals on today. Uh, but if we lived in the ancient world, all of us would have worn sandals all the time. And, and there's times where it was quite cold, and our feet would have been kind of wet and dirty. And there's times when it would have been quite hot, and our feet would have been very dusty. And when we came to somebody's house to eat, 
One of the moments that was critical, one of the moments that was key in that relationship is that we would wash our feet before we eat. We wash our hands, we wash our feet. We wash our feet and our hands as a symbol, as a statement of relationship, of friendship, of oneness. It, it was a cultural thing. It's just what they did. It would be, it would be really weird if I invited you round to ours for a meal one evening and I told you to get your shoes and socks off and wash your feet. But it would be really weird if I didn't say hello and say, it's great to see you, sit down, have a drink. There was a cultural sense that there were things that we did that made statements of our relationship with each other. But, but what we actually see is that the disciples have not appropriately followed that. I, I, I only have noticed this in this past year or so. I've often thought that when we get to this moment, that there was this kind of uneasy silence as people kind of look at each other, wondering who's going to wash the feet. I don't think that happened, actually. Because what we see is the evening meal was in progress. They had already started eating. And the devil had prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. There is a moment where they've just got on with eating. The custom, the tradition of relationship has not been expressed. Whether that is because there wasn't a servant there to do it for them, and none of them considered themselves lowly enough to, to be willing to do it, whatever the reason or disrespect, if you like, for the custom of the day, whatever it was, we see that actually the disciples are eating. They're already around the table. They've started the meal, and their feet are dirty. Now, now whatever the reason, and I think it probably is because they all could consider themselves too superior to wash each other's feet, whatever the reason, what they have not done is respected the statement of relationship. It's what they've not done. And so Jesus becomes the servant. That's an amazing thought. Jesus becomes the servant. So Jesus got up from the meal. Did you notice that? I'd not noticed that before. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus got up. While the meal was going on, stripped himself off so that he was left only with the clothing of a servant, wrapped a towel around him, and washed the disciples' feet. He becomes the servant. He, he places himself at service to those who he is with. But more than that, he states in doing that, I am in relationship with you. Culturally, that he, that's what he does. I know we're eating together, but that's not enough. There's got to be more than just eating together. 
There has got to be the statement of relational oneness that comes from the washing of feet. Uh, do you know one of the things that... It, I have a kind of a mixed thing with this, you know. I, I, no, I don't think... Maybe some of you would think I am, but I don't think I'm much of a traditionalist. I don't think I am. But you know, traditions in some ways are really important. That they are things which, which are there for reasons. And maybe they change over time. Maybe they become new things. But traditions emerge over time. And they, they, they stay significant because of what they are saying. And Jesus says, I am your friend and you are my friend. Our relationship is oneness. But you know, and in preparing us for where we're going, I don't think even that statement of relationship is big enough for what Jesus did. I don't think even the statement of servanthood is big enough for what Jesus was doing. Because the washing of hands and feet carried even more significance to the Jewish people. We read in Exodus in chapter 30 in verse 19, uh, it says this, Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the, approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. There was something about the temple that required the tradition of cleanliness, the washing, a statement of cleanliness to come to something holy. You know, as we begin our Easter journey, this little section for me, the servanthood of Jesus and the preparing the disciples for a moment of holiness seems really important. We're going to see lots of things. We're going to see three things, actually, over the next three weeks. I'll give you the heads up now so that you're not surprised. We're going to see that Jesus is our priest. We're going to see that Jesus is our prophet. And we're going to see that Jesus is our king. We're going to see all of those three things from Easter. But what we see in this moment is Jesus is preparing His friends for a moment of holiness. That's, a, that's incredible, isn't it? Who was this Jesus to do that? Who was this Jesus to say, this is a moment which is so incredibly significant, so important, that I am preparing you for something incredibly awesome. Something which is so significant, it will be remembered until I return again. Who is this Jesus? It, that is a key question. Who is He? 
Who has the right to say something like that? Who has the right to change the course of the dialogue that God has with His people? That's what Jesus does at Easter. He changes the conversation. Up until that moment in time, the temple was in place, the sacrificial structures were in, pre- in place, the washing was in place, the, the Passover was in place. All of those things were in place. God's people were going along hunky-dory. And then Jesus comes along and He knocks everything in a completely different direction and yet connected. Who has the right to do that? That is a key question. And if we, get, if we come to terms with who has the right to do that, we will begin to understand Easter. And so we come to Hebrews, and the opening three verses of Hebrews answers it all. This is the answer of why Jesus has the right to take things completely in a different direction. The first thing is this. We see, first and foremost, the, the reassess, reaffirmation, rather, the reaffirmation that God speaks. It's the first thing that we see. And so, friends, if there is somebody who is saying, I would believe in God if He just made Himself clear, this is a verse from the Bible which is saying, God has done that and continues to do that in the way that he has decided is appropriate. He speaks. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. It's incredible. Look at the way it's carefully worded. God speaks (laughs) through the prophets and in various ways. Do we understand what the Bible is saying there? The whole of the Bible is saying that all of the acts of God, all of the words of God, all of the statements of God, all of the things that is gathered together in the Old Testament, that is God speaking. I try and describe it. When I remember when our, when our boys were little, in fact, there was a really kind of, it's, it's a bit infamous in our family, there was a moment, you know, when the two older boys, and one of them's here, he's going to kind of smile about this, that they were kind of messing around in the, in the shopping mall that we were walking through, and, um, and I just grabbed hold of their hands and pulled them to my side, and that was me speaking. I didn't say anything at that point, but... But in communicative terms, I am speaking by act, aren't I? That that is something that conveys. I am doing something which speaks something. The grabbing and the dragging to my side, it actually concluded by me saying, don't move from there. And I kind of carried off walking and they both stayed there. (laughs) And I kind of turned around. Well, I meant walk alongside me. So there was words and there was non-words. So the non-words are as much a speaking as the words. And so God speaks through the things that He does 
and the things that He says. That is great news because it says that throughout the Bible, God has been absolutely concerned to speak to us, to engage with us. Our relationship with God depends on the fact that God communicates with us. It doesn't depend on our ability to communicate with Him. It depends first and foremost that He is willing to communicate with us. Communication is an incredibly important thing, isn't it? Probably most relational breakdowns, whatever the relationship is, most relational breakdowns occur because of a breakdown of communication. You know, if you've been in any kind of management training, it's kind of the, it's the yawn moment, isn't it? When everybody, well, it's down to communication. Well, it probably is down to communication. You know, those moments when you're in a, a, an argument with somebody who you really love, and then you get the non-communication, the silence. That's a really crippling moment. The great news is that the Bible says that God communicates with us and always has and always will. But the next verse goes on to say this, but in these days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir over all, of all things and through whom also He made the universe. That verse is absolutely key to us understanding why Jesus has the right to change the whole direction of what it means to engage with God, and He does it at Easter. He has the right because He is God's Son. It's Jesus, the Son of God. In other words, what God, what God is saying in, in His Word here, He's saying, God has spoken to us in the past in ways which we've really understood. It's been really clear that God is speaking, but it's been, God has been speaking in His absence. And now He speaks in His presence. Isn't that amazing? It, it, it was really clear back there that it was God who was speaking, but it's now really clear that it's God speaking now. He has spoken by His Son. Just so that we understand the relationship of the Father and Son, and we don't fall into a misunderstanding that Jesus has somehow become God's Son on this earth, the book of the writer of Hebrews confirms it by saying, and through whom also He made the universe. That's, that's a big statement, isn't it? We can't get, we're not let off the hook with the idea that Jesus was a normal human being who was born in this world and then was adopted as God's Son, and He becomes God's Son on this earth. We can't get away with that. He is God's Son and was actually there creating everything that is. <laughs> so, He has to be the essence of God. What what the writer is saying there is essentially everything is created by Jesus. Through Him, that's how it is created. And anything that is created is not God 
and anything that is not created is God. God is the creator. He is the origin of everything. And Jesus is on the line, on the side of the line of origin, not created. And so we see that Jesus comes into this world and He has an astounding right to change the course of our relationship with God because He is God. That's who He is. That idea is so fundamental to the message of the Christian faith that we absolutely have to embrace that idea that Jesus is God. The Christian faith cannot stand on the idea that Jesus was just a good man. The Christian faith absolutely demands that God is present in the world. And that's what we see from this verse. And so when we look back and we see a humble servant wrapped in a towel, washing his disciples' feet, we are astounded that that is the creator of the universe. Doesn't that speak about the, the character and the nature of God? God can, the concept of God, for some of us, can be a terrifying idea. The prospect of some unseen, incredible force that's looking down with wrath on everything that I do. And maybe sometimes we need to feel as though God is, is angry at our actions, but what we most need to know is that God is a serving, gentle Father and Son and Spirit who brings us into relationship with Him and He washes our feet. That's the nature of God. He is a servant God. And so we have that kind of strange paradox almost. How can those two things go together? And yet Hebrews makes it really clear that this is God speaking. But we also see that Jesus is everything that we need to understand of God. Everything that we need to understand. I don't know. Let me, let me try to caveat that. I don't know what we might begin to understand of God in eternity. I don't know. There might be aspects of understanding God that are way beyond anything that we can even conceive of now. But what I do know is this, because it says it here, Jesus is everything, everything that I need to know of God. Look at what it says. The Son of God is the, rad the radiance of God's glory. <laughs> That's pretty, there's nothing less, is there? If you want to shine God into the world, it's Jesus. He's the radiance of God, God's glory and the exact representation of His being. I, I find that an, a, an amazing statement. It's not He's a copy of. It's more than that. He is an exact representation. He lacks nothing. He represents all of the nature and the character of God. 
He is sustaining all things by His powerful Word, and He lives. (laughs) After His purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. That's Jesus. That is Jesus. That is who we are going to look at over these next few weeks. That is the Jesus that we are going to consider. That contrast of the one who washes disciples' feet and at the same time is the exact representation and all that I need to know about God in this world. Now, there is an an inevitable challenge to that, isn't there? And it's the challenge of what we understand of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does that work when Hebrews is saying, this is all that we need to know? I think it works like this. The Father is willing to exalt the Son so that He is the one that we see. So, if the Father is willing to exalt His Son, then I'm willing to look at Jesus. And I'm only able to do that if the Holy Spirit empowers me to look at Jesus, because the Holy Spirit does exactly the same. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring us into that relationship to look at Jesus and say, I believe that He is the exact representation of of God. That is pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? It's, it's why I think that idea of the, the disciples having their feet washed, ready for something that is astoundingly holy, is so apt for our moment as we begin this journey. Peter, in his inimitable style, does not understand the supremacy of Jesus in his servanthood. He says, are you going to wash my feet also? No, you'll not wash, not wash my feet. <laughs> you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. How do we, how do we begin our journey in the Easter story, I think we begin with that phrase of Jesus. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. There's so much in that, but I think it is at least this. Unless you accept me in my way, then you have no part with me. And Unless you allow me to serve you, you have no part with me. Both of those are real challenges and real problems for our independent mindset. Right at the beginning, we kind of say, I wish God would show us Himself, then I'd believe. And Jesus, according to Hebrews, is God showing Himself And he is saying, and you've got to do it my way. And number two, he's doing it in such a way that he's saying, and this is the most beautiful thing, that the next three weeks 
is understanding how Jesus serves us. Understanding how Jesus serves us. I have not come to be served, but to serve, Jesus says, and to give my life as a ransom for many. I guess as we begin the next three weeks, it's preparing our hearts, and that's what really what this afternoon was about, to see who Jesus is and to be ready for the complexity of the way in which He serves us.